I try to work out a persona and then really ask myself, like, what's the journey of this persona? When do they realize that they have a pain? What do they do before they realize it? What do they do after? Where can they be looking for information? Just really drilling down and spending days, if not weeks, on this customer experience mapping alone. And I always say, like, there is no growth strategy before you've done enough experiments. Welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Falsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams book more meetings. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO, and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. Hi, my name is Ivan Mariasen, CEO and co-founder of Monites, and you're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi, and welcome, Ivan. Hey, good to be here. How are you? Doing really well. Exciting ending of the year, trying to close the quarter on a really positive note, but it's been a great year for us. Then let's jump into it uh, right away, Ivan. First thing, who is Ivan? Please help me get the context of how you look at yourself. Absolutely. So so I'm Ivan. I'm the co-founder of Monites. I previously built one of the leading SME neobanks in Germany called Penta that sold to Conto last year. And before that, worked in Silicon Valley for a bunch of years, growing different B2B SaaS companies. So been in startups my whole career, marketer by background, really passionate about fintech and just like making the world a better place. So that's, that's a little bit about me and also happy to say a few words about Monites. And yeah, you helped me segue into that. What does your company, Monite, do? Do the elevator pitch. So Monite is an embedded finance provider. We basically help B2B platforms plug in additional functionality for their clients, such as invoicing and revenue collection, accounts payable automation, just kind of spending management. So we would go to a B2B neobank or verticalized SaaS solution and help them become an all-in-one for their clients, a sort of a full system of record where their customers can fully manage revenue and spending in their interface. So sort of like these guys can become like Build.com but for their clients. And then the idea is that these guys becoming super apps change the value proposition to their customer and their customer gets really a customized but high quality all-in-one solution where they can just manage their business in one place. And that's very convenient. And then us as a company, we're in late seed stage. We raised money from a number of US VCs and great angels, such as founders of Klarna, Moly, Neum, execs from Plaid, PayPal, Square, et cetera, et cetera. We have 25 platform clients and we're live in EU, US, and a couple more regions. And I'm always super curious about the, the big why. And now, now you told me not so much how, but what you do and uh, some cool things about your company. But why did you and your co-founder uh, start in Monite? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. So I think Monite idea was born um, during my Penta time. So working with all these small businesses uh, made me realize that actually, you know, transactional banking, even expense cards are not such a big challenge for them anymore. But what they always struggle with is all sorts of financial admin, just having a good overview in a business, uh, having the right financial products at the right time, etc. 
And a lot of this came down to the fact that they just didn't have proper finance management. Like if you're a big company, you have a lot of money, you buy professional ARP, you have a big team to handle this. But if you're an SME, most of the times you don't have stuff in order. And as a result, you run into all sorts of issues. And managing it, at least as a few years back, was pretty hard. Like you needed specialized software for everything, for like expenses, accounting, cash flow analytics, these, these, these stats. And then you end up with like 10 specialized softwares none of which are actually designed for you specifically as a business, but they're sort of like generic, one-size-fits-all. The future that we saw was that there will be a lot more platforms popping up that really solve the problem holistically for a specific type of customer. And they could be a POS like Square or Moly, right? They could be neobanks like Conto. They could be verticalized SaaS or other platforms, whoever an SME considers their system of record. But in an ideal world, every SME owner would tell you like, hey, I just want one system that does it all for me. So Monite said, look, we, we actually tried first to create this one-stop shop until we heard people already want this one-stop shop elsewhere. And then we said, look, why would all these other platforms try to build it themselves, spend a million in years, if we could just do it for them in an embedded way. And so one of its core idea is that we want small businesses to have great finance automation exactly where they sit in the shape and form that is most convenient for them. So they minimize the time running all sorts of finance things and really maximize the time growing the business, whatever banal that sounds. And we're doing this through the most scalable approach we could find, which is basically API first. Thank you. It's time to move on to a favorite segment of mine and also the listeners, and that is five quick ones. And Ivan, here you need to be quick. I will throw up a word and the first sentence, poof, your thoughts there. Do you understand? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay, here we go. Software as a service. Highly scalable software across the world. Your biggest role model. Elon Musk breaking the boundaries of possibility. Something that's keeping you awake during the nights right now. Where the markets are going, how the consumers will behave in practice, not in our dreams. <laughs> Your happy place. Probably Barcelona recently. Seaside in Europe has we work and such such better weather than London or Berlin. <laughs> and the last thing, you are scouting for 2024. I'm hoping for market recovery and startup moods, temperature going up across the board. Okay, several, several interesting things here. I start with the last thing. You are hoping for the market. Do you think it will go up or is it just a hope? I actually, I actually do. Like I, I speak to VCs and just the market all the time, but... My, my, my sort of sentiment right now is that it's actually going to get better. I think the adjustment has happened for a lot of companies out there. And this adjustment from like building something cool and reaching valuation multiples has converted into, hey, let's build a viable business for most of the people I talk to, which means that investor money, et cetera, et cetera, will hopefully keep coming back unless there are other macro shocks that we can't predict right now. But I do expect 24 to be better than 23. In, in all senses, uh, but more than anything, I'd, I'd love to see the sort of the mood in startups um, going back to excited because now there, there is, there's been a lot of sort of like depressing signals, like people being laid off, like not enough money, hard to raise capital, etc. I hope that will get better in 24, but, but again, can't say 100%. For me, it's like 60-40 right now. Okay. 
and then Barcelona, but I can see you explain why, and I, I, I also love Barcelona, uh, Elon Musk. Can you please elaborate that a bit? Why, of all people, why did you choose him? Yeah. Yeah, look, I think uh, for, for me, there are things that I love about what he does and there are things that I don't appreciate or don't fully agree with. But the part that really inspires me is the fact that he rethinks what's possible by thinking differently, by challenging himself and others to just dream a lot bigger. And I think this is this is exactly how I try to build the company and just like build my life. It's redefine what's possible and just like challenge myself and ask why is it actually not possible? Like, why can't we do double? Yeah, theoretically, it's super difficult, but why not? And so I think it's if we dream bigger, we achieve bigger. And that's the mentality I try to be in. And whenever somebody tells me something is impossible, I will definitely um, challenge that and, and try to sort of overcome the, the boundaries in that sense. Okay. We put period for the five quick ones for this time and move on to MRR topic. I have understand that you have doubled your MRR every quarters this year. What has been the most critical factors to be able to do that? Yeah, I think our business is a little bit different from a typical SaaS because we do infrastructure and for us, you know, like revenues are delayed because like you sign a contract and you wait for a client to actually do the implementation, then go live, then you actually start earning money. But I think what's, what we've seen as a very important success factor is monitoring the key things throughout the process and really making sure that nothing is going like completely off rails, just doing our diligence every step of the way. But the biggest thing that moved the needle is, is just being very consistent in our investments. Because in, in infrastructure business especially, it's very easy to give up early and say, hey, it's not working, like there is no fast revenue, there is no fast results. But in fact, what really matters is just consistently making an investment, pushing in a strategy and waiting for the harvest to come. And I think for us, like we had a plan for when we should be collecting those results, when we should be seeing them. Not all of that happened on time, but because we kept pushing in the same direction, the the results actually kept coming. And because we kept pushing further, they kept coming in uh, further quarters as well. And then another point I would stress is one of the biggest enablers for us as a company in general in all challenges is, is just being very, very conscious. So we encourage people to like really speak up and, you know, speak their mind. And we just realized at some point that, for example, like unless we reinforce customer success function, we're not going to keep seeing great MRR results. So wasn't exactly in a budget, wasn't exactly for that amount, but we made it happen. We got a great guy for customer success hired and he's supercharging it right now. So I think the two things that helped us were consistently pushing in the same direction and being very conscious about the missing pieces. I'm thinking like, what me? No, we, we stopped there. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. It all makes sense. Uh, totally. So we move on to the segment of an external question. In my podcast, I don't just want it to be me shooting questions towards you. I want to lend my voice to other people in the SaaS community. And today we have a question from uh, a listener here from the Nordics. And this is the question. Hi, Ivan. What do you see as the biggest threat against your company in the next two years? Yeah, that's 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 one of my favorite questions. I think w- when we look at the market and at sort of our space, we are innovators. We're the first ones to be doing this type of functionality in an embedded manner. So I think the, the biggest threat, just like for anyone in embedded, 
is that uh, the market doesn't go in a direction that we expect because many embedded products, they're done with a specific like future vision in mind that sort of like we imagine the market in five to 10 years looking more or less like this. So the biggest danger is that the market just takes a different turn, meaning that, for example, the platforms we sell to think of their strategy very differently or that people who are actually the end users of software would have something else coming up. I don't know, like it's, it's a bullshit example, but like, I don't know, something would magically turn and be inside chat GPT or like finance people would never give up on Excel ever or something else. So some turns in human behavior and actually end user behavior or platform behavior uh, remain the biggest challenges because whatever we need to do, we rely on these people to take specific steps together with us or after us. And if these steps don't happen or don't happen on time, for us, as for any venture-backed company, we might not be able to get to the right results in time. And that's why we actually treat PMF as an ongoing battle, maybe until we reach like late series B, just because we think that there is no settling early in the new segment of the market. We need to be keep we need to keep reassessing how this is going and keep watching very closely um, customer feedback, use cases coming in, etc. And one interesting thing I can share what we've been seeing before is like we started with the thesis that like neobanks and vertical SaaS companies would be like the primary customers that will come the fastest. And what we've seen actually is that like payment providers are coming to us in huge volumes and like all asking the same thing, which we didn't even expect for this type of use case. But this is just one other indicator that the actual behavior of platforms and end users can heavily influence where we go. This is why we keep we keep it flexible. And again, remain very conscious about um, the things that could impact the strategy. And as you say, as long as you have not reached the super big, like serious C stage, you, you need to be humble and ears towards the ground and be quick uh, if you need to do a pivot. But uh, thank you for the question. And uh, Ivan, for the answer, uh, let's talk about bad things or the worst things. Can you share one or a few of the worst things you have gone through as an entrepreneur? Absolutely. I think actually, I would say that the worst things I went through were not actual company challenges or actual happenings that we came across. These were more how I felt about certain things. And there's always a difference between reality and perception. So my worst moments were like, you know, I'm sure every founder can relate just thinking like, what if none of this shit makes sense? Like, what if we are completely wrong with this thesis and this market and everything is wrong and I'm like the wrong person for this um, idea or any sort of other self-doubts. I think self-doubts on critical things, on core things has been the hardest thing for me as an interpreter. I keep even now having a constant imposter syndrome I, I learned to sort of quiet it down and like chill out and healthily like not give too much fuck. But at the same time, I think this is, this is the ho- the hardest thing. When you're in good mindset, when you are in positive mood, when you are with great team, all the challenges that you come across, like a big customer having big issues or like a deal falling through or something else or like financing being hard, is just a productive challenge. Like you go and sort it out when you're in the right mindset. The hardest thing is when you are not in the right mindset and tackling those states has been the hardest thing for me, which which led me to like, you know, do more meditation, spirituality, Reiki, et cetera, et cetera. Just because for me as a founder, these things were really a salvation from some of the states I've been experiencing. And over years, I managed to get to a lot better ground in managing myself. 
Okay, uh, so if we stay here, you, you said not actual compound challenge, self-doubt, feel your own feelings, etc. And if we dive a bit deeper here regarding your, let's call it tax, uh, to, to uh, help yourself, you said meditation, you, you said you earlier said Barcelona is a happy place. Can you please elaborate like your go-to plan when, when these things kicks in with the imposter syndrome or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think there is a there is a number of tactics I could share. So first and foremost, I taught myself to go and speak to others about how I feel, to my close advisors, to other founders, just share how I feel. This this actually led maybe back back then unexpectedly to a situation where a lot of people told me like, dude, I feel exactly the same way regularly. No no problem. Like that's normal. So the feeling that you're not alone with these feelings is very helpful. Also, obviously to my co-founder and some of the senior team members. The second thing that, that really helped is just trying to get a lot more conscious about like how my brain is wired, where this is coming from. And this is where like I really enjoyed reading like Sadhguru's Inner Engineering or dispenses uh, books around sort of like supernatural or uh, other books and just really understanding how I'm wired as a person, like what, what could help me overcome these sort of thoughts. And then going a bit more into sort of like a spiritual direction, like I've been practicing meditation, I've been practicing Reiki, which is a Japanese energy practice, and I'm now practicing regularly. And then on the more sort of like, like I, I would say just general live schedule side, I forced myself to take proper holidays at least two times a year, being completely off, like being completely disconnected to really refresh my mind. And I also switched my sleeping routine from like, hey, let me just work a few hours this night to like catch up on a few things to like, I need to sleep eight hours. And unless I sleep eight hours, I'm not 100% in the right mode for my team. I'm not always I make it to be frank, but there was one book that really helped me get there, which is why we sleep. It also scared the shit out of me because I don't want to die early. But but these these things combined, just like being more conscious about how my body works, adjusting my routine, doing more sports, um, starting meditation and Reiki, were all game changers in how I feel today and how I can operate. I still do have all these things coming up and the thoughts and an imposter syndrome, but I can manage them a lot better right now. And now you gave me and many more people several good keys. Thank you for that. We have reached the topic of your choice. This means that I will sip it. And uh, the only rule here, Ivan, is that you need to talk about something that you are very nerdy about and feel passion for. So the floor is yours. I, I, I think my, my favorite topic being a marketer by background is, is just go to markets and positioning and marketing in general. And to give, to give people some background, the way I think about this function is more than like typical marketing. Hey, let's get some traffic and, you know, like get the ad, Google ads leads or something else. I think about gross as a more holistic function of uh, product strategy of like who we're going after, why, why that works, etc. And what I want to, what I want to say is that the two recent, the two recent examples I've seen is like one is Penta, one is Monite. In Penta, it was a lot more straightforward go to market where we had, you know, business banking for SMEs in Germany and Dach. And we were just going to market directly where the challenge was more to like really figure out the channels through which to reach people. And then in Monite, it was a lot more holistic because we started as a B2B company. We made some learnings. And then we realized that actually continuing as B2B is not as fruitful as switching into infrastructure. And I consider this a part of true go-to-market strategy, 
where you don't want to get attached to a specific frame or it's a specific format of how you're delivering value. What you want to keep in mind is the end goal. Like if we want to change how SMEs go about their finance management, we can't say, look, we're only doing B2B. If B2B is not the right way to do it, then we should be flexible in that. And I, the, the reason why I, I always stress GTM is because if, if done right, if founders and team members are conscious about this, this would completely change the company trajectory. And we actually now been discussing at Monet is that when we started, we thought like, okay, we'd be doing like European market, one-stop shop for finance, etc. Now we're a global company. We are, we are having footprint we could never imagine when we started the company. And all of this just because the go-to-market changed. And then if, if we talk about a sort of a level deeper, like how, how do we think about customer generation? I just always want to point people to, to the customer experience component and saying like there is, there is obvious stuff, but there is also non-obvious stuff. And obvious stuff works to an extent, but doesn't create a competitive advantage, whereas non-obvious stuff could be a real differentiator. So maybe to, to give some specific examples here, whenever I've worked on go-to-market strategy, I try to work out a persona and then really ask myself, like, what's the journey of this persona? When do they realize that they have a pain? What do they do before they realized it? What do they do after where can they be looking for information? And just really drilling down and spending days, if not weeks, on this customer experience mapping alone would really help map out a compelling map of experiments to be done. And I always say, like, there is no growth strategy before you've done enough experiments. And then when you test different channels, when you test different hypotheses, um, at least we in Penta and we at Monet had some really surprising found findings. For instance, in Penta, we made affiliate work as one of our best channels. When we started, we didn't even know affiliate exists for this segment. In Monite, it's, as I mentioned, like this was also the, the embedded approach, the API first, but it was also the, the component of working with guys like, for example, integrators that are already serving a large number of B2B, for example, like banks or other providers where they're saying, look, we already have this customer. We already have the platform. We just need more functionality. And then the go-to-market could be not going directly to these B2B guys, but going through an integrator. And then none of this would be possible, quite frankly, without customer experience mapping, without a proper customer journey and thinking um, a couple levels um, deeper in this regard. And then on the other hand, I think the best growth hack, especially in early stage or even in later stages, is just really spending enough time talking to the market. And when I say talking to the market, it's not like you talk to like just sort of potential customers. I actually encourage people to talk to many different people in the field, including other industries, and ask them the right questions. Ask them about growth hacks. Ask them about strategies that worked for them. Some of the strategies we employ, like I heard about in like health tech podcasts, or I heard about from biotech France, like Industries that are completely unrelated, but analogy thinking can be very powerful because otherwise we all end up in our like fintech or other bubble and it's hard to get out. So you chose go-to-market and positioning as your choice. And I had my go-to-market question after that, so, but you have covered much. So, so I just want to make sure that, uh, because my question to you was, What's the one thing that you think are the most important connected to go-to-market? And to tune back to your topic, would you say that that is uh, not talking to, to market, but the customer journey? Really think through the customer journey for 
the persona you have worked out. Would you say that's the one thing according to you? That is, that is exactly it. And and honestly, like honesty is the hardest thing about go to market as well as other things. Like at some point you might find that something doesn't make sense, but it's hard to admit because like, what if you built half of your company on these thesis? So my advice is always like, just, just really be very, very brutally honest with yourself about if this is true or not, if the customer actually needs it and in this shape and form and there, because if not, it will turn up sooner or later. You just want to drive and not to end up in a wall accidentally. And therefore, this is the biggest thing about go-to-market. People, people sometimes know it's not going to work like two years ahead before they break into the wall, but then they don't admit it. They're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We'll figure it out later. So don't figure it out later. Figure it out right then. Yeah, so so many times I myself and I know so many friends that have shoe like you say shoehorned in things that you think ah it can work. No, the market never lies. If you shoehorn it, they will never care. Okay, uh, so we move forward to a part of go to market, and that is marketing. Uh, I'm curious here, what's the main thing or channel right now generating the most leads for Monite? Yeah, actually at Monite, I would say we're a sales-driven company, just like any sort of enterprise B2B sales company out there. Uh, however, we, we have a pretty strong marketing presence overall, and I would say a good portion of our leads and opportunities come from inbound requests. And it took us some time to establish online presence, but I think now we're in a pretty good level in terms of press, organic, and also paid presence. And then the the sort of the biggest channel is again outbound all sort of sales efforts. Second one is inbound marketing, and uh, third and fourth are split between basically doing um, events, so relevant events, or just like being plugged into the network. Because the amount of interest we get from investors, are like I get like a couple emails a week from some investor, you know, like hey dude, I want my portfolio company to do this. Like, can I introduce you guys? Like, sure. So these investor like network introductions plus events are the two channels following sales and inbound leads. Quite classic. The classic one is always still going strong. You should never force exactly, the classic yeah. one. And another part, you mentioned outbound a bit and outreach is part of outbound. And I want to talk about outreach connected to you. What's your yeah. preferred way of being contacted in a modern buyer's journey for B2B? How do you like to get yeah, approached? Yeah, I think we're easy. So with me, it's very simple. The only channel I would check is email. Like I, on LinkedIn, I think I, I just checked today. I have like like tens, if not hundreds of unread messages. I think like 600 introdu- like invites to, to, to connect. And unfortunately, I'm really behind. I just given the workload. However, email is good. There is a lot of spam these days that is not personalized. Like I get a lot of emails in German, although I don't speak German. So I think that the best email is when, when you really know what the company does and you send something more customized, which is like very short, max one or two lines with presentation if needed, or with like a short intro video, but mostly it's like you, you, you should be able to explain the value in one or two lines. And I usually don't take any of this stuff myself. I would just immediately forward to the right person on a team with a quick note. And so I prefer like one or two liner emails, which is like very clear, like, hey, we can help you guys get ISO SOC compliant. This is how we differ from others, whatever, All, let, let's go. Like, hey, we can help you generate the lead pipeline. We're doing this for three companies that are similar to you. For me, the most authoritative arguments are uh, basically when people clearly explain what they can do for us. 
if they understand um, our industry, who else they work with in our industry. Not like, because I get like emails saying like, oh, we also work with IKEA and Nestle. Great. I have (laughs) absolutely nothing to do with this. And then the the last bit, it's just really articulating differentiation because as as you can imagine, we get a ton of like cold outreach every day. And it's really about relevancy and seeing the the specific USP, not only for me, but also for people I forward to, because people I forward to would also have a very short attention span. They'll look at it and they can either say, look, not needed for now, or they could say, look, it's interesting. I'll take it up with them. Very interesting. And this means that we are entering the roundup because I'm looking at the clock and you are a busy person. So we don't have so many minutes left. And the first thing here in the roundup, is there anything you think I have missed asking you that could be of great value for the listeners? Look, I think we, we covered a lot of stuff. I, w- I would just say like one thing I want to say to like entrepreneurs and like startup world people in general is that the startup world is, is changing rapidly. And, you know, my mind, like I, I've, I've done a lot of um, investor roadshows this year in the US and Europe. And what I see is like a, a very atypical startup thing where investors are starting to ask like very harsh questions on actually startups becoming businesses, not just like cool companies. So my advice to everyone out there is just to think as fast as possible how to make it a real business and also find backers that believe in your vision. Because a true startup that is doing true innovation cannot just tomorrow easily generate a ton of money and be a cash cow like some traditional businesses. So you need people who are understanding and supportive, but you also need to shift all internal gears um, and internal mentality towards actual money making. And my experience with startups and like with Monite people, it takes time. Like it takes time for employees to adjust and understand that it's not 2021 anymore. Like you can't just like keep getting a hundred X on revenue valuation that the multiples are down, that investors expect to see completely different things, that there is no more bubbles of fluff. And a lot of people just don't get it. Or even if they get it, they don't want to believe it. So they keep operating as if it was 2021. So for founders and for operators, it's just really important to like wake up, realize that and enable their colleagues and switch the operating mode. And it starts from from the top like if you if you look at the right numbers across the company it will probably happen faster than if you keep going like yeah guys let's do our best people do their best but their understanding of the best might be different from what the market expects and now uh, to the three last question the first thing a book what's your favorite book you would like to recommend one of my favorite startup books is actually What You Do Is Who You Are by Ben Horowitz. It's his second and probably less known book, but I think this is like a real cornerstone of building a company. It's around culture building. It's around how things can actually work. So I definitely recommend everyone to read it. And also like we used it for a lot of culture building at Monite and continue using these sort of tactics every day. But if I may, I will also mention another one that is for a bit later stage. And this is Scaling People. It's a book by Stripe COO, got pretty famous recently, but I think she like, she just talks a lot about, about a lot of things that are very relevant. And this is the book designed for maybe later stage founders, but I would encourage pre-seed founders to listen to it as well, just to know what they're going to face in a couple of years, hopefully. And this outlook into the future is very important to the founder because unless you understand what's coming up, it's very hard to make decisions today. Thank you. Second last question. Life mottos. Can you share one of your favorite life mottos? 
I can't say I have like a, a clear life motto, but uh, for me, it's all about consciousness and honesty with myself. Uh, just being very pure, very conscious, very open with myself. And, you know, there are different stages, like when you realize things, et cetera, there is like denial stage and then there is acceptance stage and then et cetera, et cetera. So I, I taught myself to be very conscious and skip to the solutions. I'm just like, I'm conscious, I accept it. Yeah, I don't judge it. I just keep to like, okay, what do I want? This, okay, how do I make it happen? Let's go. Um, so that's that's been my life motto because with this sort of approach, you can pretty much like navigate your life no matter the situation. And the very last question then, and now you're talking to yourself, your younger self. If you would give yourself the top one to three things that you now know that you didn't know for like five years ago, 10 years ago, what would you tell yourself? I, I, I would tell myself to to be a little bit more conscious about things that I truly believe in or things that I want to be true, but actually don't know if they are true. And I'm trying to push them in the same category. And I think we're all, we're all aware and sort of familiar with wishful thinking where like, you know, out of 10 facts, maybe eight makes sense. And then you just like shuffle in two on top. And this two can actually cost you half of the amount you're spending for, for your budget. But it's sort of like, yeah, whatever. It's like on the same list. So that that's that's one, and then the other thing I, I would say is that considering the unknowns is a lot harder than it seems. And so I think if I was giving advice to my younger self, I would just advise my younger self to ask more questions to more people that are better questions, because this would save me a lot of time and a lot of money, sort of spent in learnings. I don't think all you can avoid some of the learnings, but I think you can definitely go faster if you know what you're going to be up against. And do we have a last one or should we put stop at two? I think I think the, the, the two is good. The two is good. And now I'm quickly shifting the focus to you who has been listening. Two quick ones. Number one, if you got value from Ivan, don't be selfish. Tell a friend or a colleague to listen to Ivan in B2B SaaS And thing number two, press the subscription button. We have great guests coming here every week. And Ivan, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes together with me to help the SaaS community to keep on learning. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here.